Good morning. Yes, Chris is not a kidding. I'm excited. It's been six weeks. Got a little rust to knock off, but it is. I'm excited. And yes, some of you have pointed out very kindly to me that I do talk fast, especially when I'm excited. So I worked hard on that, but I did get us out five minutes early. So I, first service. So who knows? Maybe you guys will uh, catch lunch early today. Um, I am, just to plug a couple things that Chris mentioned as announcements, that's Celebrate Recovery. I don't know if you saw the, the newspaper picture off to the right. It's really exciting. The, the thing I love is seeing three pastors from three different churches in that picture. Um, this, this work that God is doing, it started in my heart and then Pastor Irma at, at Petra. And just awesome how God brought us together. And together with this common vision, we stepped out and, and brought some others on board. And now we've got three churches that are linking arms to... I love that. I love seeing the church being the church and not splitting over. We're different. Us, Petra and Bethany are different churches, but... Um, boy, it's just neat to see us uh, focused on one thing, and that's bringing hope in the name of Jesus to people who are suffering. Uh, so again, looking forward uh, to partnering with them to get that off the ground. With that said, suffering is the title. You'll see it in the screen. What does the Bible say about? Uh, we've been in this all summer. Uh, I've had off six weeks. Again, I was supposed to be in sabbatical. Some of you know that. I was actually scheduled to come back this week, and one of our elders was going to be preaching this week, and when, once the sabbatical got canceled, he eagerly handed it over to me, and uh, I tried to give it to him. He says, no, 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 six weeks is enough for you. You, you take this thing. I don't want to do it anyway. Um, so anyway, uh, so here I am, but if you guys remember, we threw uh, out to you this past winter, what does the Bible say about, and you guys gave back all kinds of replies, and so we compiled them and listened to your questions and wrestled with them and tried to look at which ones got kind of the, uh, the, the most, and then we tried to put them all in some kind of order and kind of put it together. So the this morning, here's, let, me, let me give you the tension around this, this why this question comes up. Uh, let me kind of paint the tension for you so we can all kind of feel it, and then we'll step into the scriptures together to see what the Bible has to say about it. The tension goes like this. So uh, Pastor Chris and I and, and others on this stage, our, our worship leaders, will stand, and we will boldly and passionately declare to you that God is, in fact, great meaning God is all-powerful, God is almighty, God is in complete control of life, he's not surprised by anything, he is a great God, and being a great God, which means he has the power and the ability to work and to accomplish anything. We will then stand and say that God, the other, the other kind of overarching attribute that we believe of God is God is also good. So not only is he great and he's able to work, but he's good, meaning he wants to work. He is for you, he loves you, he is a gracious and kind God, so he is great and he is good. Then the phone rings, and you pick it up, and life changes in an instant when you hear the police officer on the other side. Or driving home from the doctor, and you got the word cancer ringing in your ears. Or you watch your child walk away from home, or spin out in some kind of addiction. Or you look out at the national scene, and you see terror or you see a tsunami wipe out an entire region. And you say, God is great. God is good. 
Now, what the tension that this spans is that this is the top objection that I have run into. People that are exploring Christianity, uh, the atheist among us, if, if you're in that camp, you're here wrestling, and they will say, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. God is, I don't buy this. The top objection to Christianity is this issue of suffering because it hits so hard and it hits so personal, and it seems to run contrary to the things that we boldly declare about this great, powerful, mighty, loving, good God that we serve. Matter of fact, I'd like to do for you, I want to read um, Sam Harris. So I don't know if any of you know Sam Harris, I've run across Sam Harris, a brilliant neuroscientist. Uh, he's also known, uh, probably more than being known for his neuroscience work, he's known for the fact that he's a world-renowned atheist. Has published a number of books on this. I was on vacation uh, this past, during this six-week span, out in Michigan, had taken in some time with my wife's family, uh, the beauty of the area. I, I picked his, uh, one of his smaller books up, written about 10 years ago, and just kind of started working through it. And I want to read for you, uh, so you can see this in their words, not just mine, but you can hear kind of what he says. Now, this is going to pick up on page 75 of the book, Letter to a Christian Nation, again, written about 10 years ago. The emphasis of this book is basically looking at Christians and saying, you're ruining our land. It's basically his, his whole, it's a, it's a letter written to tell us how awful uh, we are making America. Uh, so he's writing, he's talking about this, and he, and he gets into the point, the fact, he, he comes, he picks a bone of contention with the fact that we say God, or we don't like evolution because we say there's an intelligent designer is the language that we've been able to work into our public schools. Uh, so he comes along and says intelligent designer, and he looks at it, and he's going to pick up this point here to say, really? So here's how it goes. It says, when... We look at the natural world, we see extraordinary complexity, but we do not see optimal design. So get what he's saying? So he, so he gives consent to the fact that, yes, I can see why you say there's an intelligent designer, because there is, there is unbelievable complexity of the human body and, and the world and the, the, the cosmos and the, everything around us. So complexity, but not optimal design. Here's what he goes on. He says this, we see redundancy, regression, and unnecessary complications. We see bewildering inefficiencies that result in suffering and death. So hear what he's saying? He's saying, guys, this is a problem. If you tell me God is who he says he is, what is this? He goes on, flip a page, page 76. He says this, God appears to have an even greater fondness for viruses. Biologists estimate, estimate that there are at least 10 strains of virus for every species of animal on earth. Many viruses are benign, of course. And some ancient viruses may have played an important role in the emergence of complex organisms. But viruses tend to use organisms like you and me as their borrowed genitalia. Many of them invade our cells only to destroy them, destroying us in the process, horribly, mercilessly, relentlessly. Viruses like HIV, as well as a wide range of harmful bacteria, can be seen evolving right under our noses, developing resistance to antiviral and antibiotic drugs to the detriment of everyone. Evolution both predicts and explains this phenom. The book of Genesis does not. How can you imagine that religious faith offers the best account of those realities or that they suggest some deeper, compassionate purpose of an omniscient being? Do you pick the tension up? Do you understand why I believe, why I believe this question was raised? What does the Bible say about suffering? It's a great question. Now, if Sam were here this morning, I've never met Sam, I've, I've never engaged Sam, obviously, but if Sam were here this morning, I would look at him and I would say thank you, first of all. Sam puts his heart out there, and I would even go so far as to validate some of his observations. He makes 
some wise and intuitive observations about life that Christians at times don't do a really good job of answering intelligently. I would validate to Sam that Christians at times throw Pollyannic Christian answers out of it's all about faith. You let go and let God, and, and we throw out this little God is in control, and God is great, and God is good, but we don't always step into the tension and wrestle with that stuff head on. I would also, if Sam were here, I'd love to hear his story. Because what I've found, I don't know Sam's story at all, but what I've found is those especially who struggle where Sam sits often have a story where this has taken center stage in their life. And they don't quite know what to do and how to wrestle through it. So I would honor if he were here this morning. What I'd also like to do with Sam is engage in a conversation. And I want to do that with all of us. And here's the point I would make. I would actually love to share with Sam that suffering and pain just might point to the reality that God is in fact who he says he is, not the converse. That when you look out at the world and you see the terror and you see the tsunami and you see the cancer and you see the bacteria that ravage life, I would like to point out, and look at the, we're going to look in the scriptures, that that might just point to the fact that God is who he says he is, not the converse. So to do that, I want to start with, we're going to look at the scriptures, we're going to turn to Romans in a minute, but I want to start, lay some foundation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Now, Sam referenced Genesis, and he says it doesn't give us the answers. I want to actually start there. Genesis chapter 1, it starts out where God creates the world. It's this 20,000-foot overview. It's this, it's this flyover, and this is what God did. He then steps in, the writer steps into Genesis chapter 2, and is going to really peel back the curtains and give us some detail on not just the creation of the world, but the creation of mankind, one of the key central figures that then we see this relationship between God and man throughout the pages of the scriptures. So Genesis chapter 2, as he's talking about the creation of mankind, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that it says that God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it goes on to say, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and then it goes in to say, so, we, so because we're creating his image, be fruitful and increase in number, and rule and subdue the earth, so God's given us this planet, and he's given us the freedom to rule and to reign, and here's where it picks up in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, now he's going to give a warning, but catch, there's a, there's a key word here, you may, what's the word? You may freely turn to your neighbor, turn to the person beside you and say, you are free. Go ahead, wake up there. Let's go. You're free, right? Now, so he says this, and he says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. I want to pause here. There's, there's, a, there's the rest of this. Don't jump there yet. But he says, you are free. This is one of the beauties of God. He loves us, so he sets us free. Love and freedom are, in essence, one and the same thing. When you love someone, you set them free. You don't try to manipulate. You don't control. You don't pull the strings of their life. Flip the coin. Think of it this way. If, if I were living 200 years ago here in the South, in our states, and I owned a slave, God forbid, as awful as that may sound. So I'm owning a slave, and I, I am sitting with you in the saloon, and we're having a drink, and I say, man, my slaves love me. And you challenge it and say, well, why? Well, because they do what I say. You would say, hey, that doesn't mean they love you. That means they're afraid of you. That means they know what you will do to them if they don't obey. True freedom is to say, no, there are no strings attached. You are a free person. 
God creates man because he wants that return. And we're going to look at this in a, minute, in a minute. He wants that return back. This says, you are free. Let me take a side note in this. This is such, this is, since we're talking about suffering, it's a little side note. I'll hear people at times say, why didn't God stop that drunk driver? Why didn't God stop my mom? Why didn't God step in and control and you fill in your situation? And I'd say, well, that's I, a lot of pain around those questions. I'd say, where does it end? If God limits their freedom and steps in to control them, how about you? Does he limit your freedom? Where does he step in and control you? So God in his love and his foreknowledge, he says, I'm giving you this world. In chapter one, we see it. I've given you this world to rule and to reign. It is yours. You are free. Now, because he doesn't just want to be a puppet master pulling strings, look at the second thing we learn. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. It's all yours except, now he's going to put a boundary, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, capture this next sentence. If you eat its fruit, you are what? You are sure to die. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a parent. Maybe that angry, tired uh, mom gets a little irrational, right? You're, you're maybe in the grocery store, um, and you see the mom around the corner, and the, they have this little ball of energy called a toddler in their threes and maybe four, and they're touching everything on that shelf, and they, the mom is pushing one of those carts that, you know, that has like that car thing attached to it because the kid, they just had to have this car, mom, mom, we got out of the car, but here they are halfway through the trip, and the child is no longer in the car, the child is now out of the car or hanging out of the car, and the mom is trying to focus on her list, and the mom's trying to get it done, and has just had enough, and you walk around the corner, this is the time the mom spouts out, if you touch one more thing, you're going out to the car for the rest of this trip. So you think, wow, man, settle down, it's okay. So you continue to pick up your, you know, get your Pop-Tarts or whatever else you want, you round the next corner, and there she is again, and you look, and there's the child, right down the aisle. Does the mom take the child out to the car? No. That would be harder on the mom than it would the child. She's got to get her grocery shopping done. Now, we, we can look at a story like that and others that you've experienced, or maybe you've had a mom or a dad like that, that their parenting was more about threats and more about anger and more about fear and control and dominion. But a lot of times, parents that do that, they're full of what? Hot air. And they don't deliver on their promises. And we lose respect for parents like that if you've been in a home like that. So God loves and he's given us freedom Second thing, we can trust God. We can take him at his word. So the fact that we have pain and suffering in our world today says to me, God is who he says he is. He delivered on his word. He said, you're free, don't eat. If you eat, this is what's coming. And I say, well, Adam, what do we do with this though? How do, we, how do we interact with this today? Great question. Turn with me to Romans chapter eight. I want you to open there and dive into this passage with me. Romans chapter eight, we're gonna pick up at verse 18. Page 941, and the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. Now, as you turn into those, turn into that section, let me kind of set the context. So Romans chapter 8, in my opinion, if you were, if you were living in a land where you were arrested for your faith in Jesus, and they were going to take you off to jail, and you wanted to smuggle part of the Bible, and you knew you couldn't get the whole thing, so you're just going to take a page out. 
Romans chapter 8 is likely one of the pages that you would consider taking with you. This is a powerful hallmark section of our scriptures. Uh, Romans chapter 8, 1 opens up. It says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It builds and talks about God gave us a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of fear, a spirit of sonship. And it says, so feed who you are. Don't feed the, the sin nature, uh, the spirit of sin that, is, that is, can still be in you. Feed your, the, the sonship that's in you. And then it builds and it, and it talks how you can call him Abba or Daddy. And, and then it comes to verse 17 and he says, your children children were his heirs. And, and in fact, together with Christ, it says, verse 17, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his what? We don't like that. Now, verse 18 then shifts. And it kind of makes this transition now. It's going to dive into this subject of suffering. And one of the hallmark teaches on, teaches on, teachings on suffering comes here in this section all the way through the rest of the chapter. Uh, verse 18 says this, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory we will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to the present time. And it captures this picture here, and I'll pause right there, and it captures this picture of, of the, the trees and the birds and the flowers of the air and, and everything moving around out there. It, it, all of creation is groaning because of the sin that's entered our world. You know, I like to think, I, we don't have a lot of pets, we have two guinea pigs, and I think two goldfish, if I'm not mistaken. These two guinea pigs are my daughter's guinea pigs, and I, I just have come to love guinea pigs. They're the cutest little uh, creatures. And, and, but these guinea pigs, they love, I've learned that they love me. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I walk up the steps, and um, they, they hear my voice. They'll be really quiet, and they'll hear my voice. As soon as they hear my voice, they start squawking and squealing. Um, I think what they've learned is when they do that, I find them so cute, I go and get a carrot and bring it up. So I think they've, they just kind of trained them. But I look at my daughter's guinea pigs. As cute as they are, they have been touched by sin. Sin, as Denny Foreman said, he was here a few weeks ago, sin touches everything. God is not the only force and the only person at work in this world. Satan is alive and well, and sin, sin is running rampant. All of creation groans and aches to be relieved from the pain that has been put upon them because of what Adam did when he ate the fruit. It says it all groans and looks forward to the day it's going to be moved. Now look at the rest of it. It doesn't just say all of creation. Paul gets very specific now in verse 23. And we believers, we Christians who've been adopted also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. So God's put his seal in us, the Holy Spirit, as, as Ephesians calls it. For we long, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering, from the impact that it has on us. We too, we wait eager, with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So it says, man... Sin has entered our world. It is alive and it is well. Satan is here and he is working and wrecking havoc. Now, if you're engaged in this at all, what you will begin to do in your mind is say, no, wait a minute. 
Adam, I hear this teaching that talks about God being sovereign. Matter of fact, Adam, I know here, I know my Bible a little bit, and I know in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, look at verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. She said, no, wait a minute, Adam. So you're saying, you're saying sin has entered our world, Satan is here, sin is here, God isn't the only force that's at play. Isn't God sovereign and in control? I'd say yes, he is. But here's what I want to push in on us. I'm afraid that too often theologians and pastors and authors and, and bloggers, in a desire to make sense of the freedom of man, and the sovereignty of God have pigeonholed God into a view that I think is faulty. Anytime we try and bring an answer to this debate that's been around since Moses, this, this free will of man and sovereignty of God, anytime we try and bring this down to an exact, here's how it works, there's some error involved. So what I'd like to do is I want to step into that and I want to give us something to hang our hats on. If you will, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I want to give you a definition of sovereign that I've worked with out of Ecclesiastes that I've learned that I think helps me hang a hat on to understand how God is here at work with sin and suffering at play. Now chapter 3, it's page 552 and the Bible's there and the seat's in front of you. This comes in a chapter, some of you, um, the, the, the older generation among us would recognize the birds. I think they're the ones who put this chapter to music. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, for everything there is a season, a time for everything. It talks about the world spinning and there's a time to die, there's a time to be born, there's a time to harvest and plant. And it's all these contrasting images of the, how the world spins. And, and then it gets down to verse 9. And it says, and what do people really get for all their hard work? So as the world spins, we work through these cycles. What do we really get? I've seen the burden God has placed on all of us. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. Very similar we just saw in verse 28 of chapter 8. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. So as the world spins, there's nothing that catches God off guard. He's accomplishing his purpose. He's accomplishing his plans. Now look at the, this next sentence. He has planted eternity in the human heart. So every single one of you, Sam Harris included, would have God's, God's eternal stamp in them. And so when, when you watch someone drop six feet under, you intuitively know that there's more to life than the here and the now. You get it. Because it's written in you. It's written on you. Now, not only because the eternity stamped in our hearts, it, it, we're also created in God's image, which gives us this ability, and we've tasted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have this ability to, to understand good, to understand evil. We have this ability to, to think and process and interact with our creator in a way that no other part of creation can. So, so we want to figure this out. How does all this work? But look at the rest of the verse. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. <laughs> Hopeful, isn't it? You hear what he's saying? You're not going to make sense of it. Try as you may. Understand that God makes it all beautiful, but you're not going to be able to make sense of it in the end. So I conclude. Look at his conclusion. I love this conclusion. So I conclude. There is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat, drink, and enjoy the fruits of their labor. For these are gifts from God. 
Verse 14, and I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. What is happening now has happened before and will happen in the future has happened before. Because God makes the same things happen over and over again. Chris and I were in L.A., loving what we took in, loving the ministry and the stuff we did in the streets. One of the things that we saw a lot of, um, there were these mobile HIV clinics. Uh, There were billboards everywhere that talked about the warning of the syphilis tsunami that's coming. Um, There were were large billboards with condoms and and just, so as we're we're driving around, we're beginning to see and take in, in in great concentration, the sexual um, brokenness of, of the culture there. And, you know, we'll sit around and, and we'll bemoan this world that we live in. And I'll say, people look at me and say, Adam, you seem somewhat optimistic. I say, I am. Because <laughs> it's really no different than what it was in Corinth and what it was in Rome and what it was in Greece and what it was in Europe. And we, we aren't seeing anything today that we haven't seen before. The world just keeps turning in seasons and turns in another season. And we don't know how it all works out. It says here, we don't know how it all makes sense. We don't know how we're given this freedom and these seasons spin and somehow God makes it beautiful. And here's the definition I've kind of, I've, I've worked and massaged over the years out of this section and, and others, other places in Scripture of time to get to. God uses the actions of man, and I would add Satan, to accomplish his purposes and plan. That, to me, is a much better definition of God is sovereign than simply saying God is in complete control. Somehow, in some way, God uses the actions of man and Satan to accomplish his purposes and plans. I'll tell you, I fear at times we're giving credit to God for stuff that belongs on his shoulders, Satan. Think of the story of Job. Who caused the tornado that took out his family. It was not God. It was Satan. But at times a day, I hear Christians say, God is in complete control. He caused that storm. He's not surprised by it. He will bring it to work towards his ends. But we are free moral agents, and this guy here is running rampant right now. Now, people step in and say, so Adam, this doesn't give me a lot of hope. I mean, why do I really suffer? And here's the thing I would say. If Sam were sitting in in the front row here, I'd say, Sam, you know what? Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of suffering. Why did I lose my child? Tiny and I have had two miscarriages. Why? Why did I lose my job? Why did my sister get cancer? Go fill yours in. Why? Why? And people look to the Bible and they look to Scripture and say, give me an answer. And I'll say, you know what? Christianity can't. But it does do something far deeper. It provides resources for facing that suffering with hope. So why are you suffering? I don't know. But I want to end with this strong clear statement. I don't know why you're suffering, but I will tell you what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love you or that he's indifferent to your condition. God is radically for you.
Turn with me, if you will, back to Romans. Look at chapter 5. We were in 8, back up to chapter 5. And what you're going to see is this thought come out. Jesus came to put himself on the hook of human suffering. God is not indifferent to your pain. He promised that it would come. He said, Adam, when you eat of that fruit, you will die. But I have, a, I have an answer. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to, I'm going to let you walk towards freedom, back towards it. So this is this, chapter 5, look, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Let me pause right there and just, just all of us in this room bring us to a common understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Right there it is. I love this verse. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by what? You know, you're, you know why, if you're a Christian, you know why you're a Christian? It's not because your mom and dad went to church. Because your mom and dad were maybe missionaries or a pastor because you gave money or you give money or you have perfect attendance or you went to a Bible school or because you stopped looking at pornography or dealt with your anger or because you read a certain translation or because you uh, give to a certain mission or you're all about some justice-oriented thing. It's not about any of that, though some of that's very good. It's by looking to this man, Jesus Christ, and saying, he told me that he is the son of God. He declared that without him, I cannot experience life. I cannot experience healing of this sin and this death and this decay in my body. I trust him and I take him at his word. And I'm putting my life in his hands. You're a Christian. Now at that point, look at verse 2. Because of our faith, God has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. That's grace. Where we now stand And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Verse 3, we can rejoice too when we run into, no, here comes our word, when we run into problems and trials or suffering. We can rejoice. Why? For the rest of the verse, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Proverbs chapter 24, I believe it's verse 16, says that a godly man, when he falls, he gets up again and again. It says an evil man, when he falls, he stays down. So, so someone who has the spirit of God in them, when they hit the deck, when they hit the canvas, when they're taken out and they're flat on their back, they'll stand themselves back up again. And through this endurance, look at verse 4, and endurance develops strength of character. So as I, as I, as I face this, this hardship, as I endure, character develops. I love, um, I'm, a, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan to the core. Some of you know that. This was a rough week for us. Ryan Tannehill went down with a non-contact injury. His, our quarterback is gone for the season. I'm like, here goes. It's all over. I'm already giving up already. They're talking about signing Jay Cutler. For those of you who know, it's like, oh my goodness, it's a bad year coming. So anyway, all that to say, the upside of the Dolphins this week is yesterday, Jason Taylor, some of you know, remember Jason Taylor from back in the 90s and then into the, and, uh, you know, played. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I watched his speech, moving speech, where he just gave gratitude to everyone in his life that he stood in the shoulders of that ultimately brought him to this point. He gets to the final two minutes And he says what this verse says. He says, listen, it's the hardship that grew me. It's the hardship, not the up times, not the the euphoric times. It's the hardship. And it's through hardship we endure and we push. And it's through hardship that we find growth. And so through this hardship we find the growth and our character strengthening. And then look at the rest of the verse. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So it's beginning to develop in me. And and basically, here's what it's saying. I have stronger assurance of my salvation because I've been enduring and walking and living out who I am. 
And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit. Here's the second time we've referenced this this morning. The Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Now look at verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's a, I mean, we're talking really good. I might do that. Verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in the wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And how did it happen? Verse 6, when we were utterly helpless, Christ stepped towards us. Now, I've looked at a lot of world religions, and what I don't see in any of them yet that I've found is what I often see is this. Their gods are saying to them, I am strong, be like me. Our God, what did he say? You are weak. I'm going to join you so that you can be like me. And when I was helpless and I was broken, God, in the form of Jesus Christ, his son, came and put himself on the hook for our suffering. So as I look across the pages of the scripture, at the beginning of it, God says, listen, I am who I say I am. I gave you a promise. When you sin, when you eat of this fruit, this is what is going to happen. And it all came to pass. But then he stepped in and said, you're my people. You're in my image. I want you. I want you back. You still have that freedom of choice, but I want you to come to me, and I'll I'll close with this verse, Hebrews chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. That's what makes him God. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now what I love, I've referenced the Holy Spirit. You saw him show up twice. He says he's in us. If you read, read it this week. Go to Romans chapter 8 and read the chapter. You're going to see the Holy Spirit show up. In Romans chapter 8, when it says this, when you are suffering, when you are hurting, when the chips are stacked against you, when you've hit the canvas and you ache and you cry out. And matter of fact, you're not even sure how to cry out anymore. It's just a dark night of the soul. It says God's spirit is living inside of you. And you know what it says he does? He talks for you. When you have no words left. How many of you have been there? Right, you've hit the bottom. You don't know what way is up. Sure, Proverbs 24, 16 says a godly man stands back up and you're not even sure you know what way is up. And you ache and you hurt and this is the beauty of God as he stepped into that position with us. And he left his spirit in us. So in that moment, he is crying out to God and here's how I kind of picture it. This is how I picture it is God is sitting in heaven on a throne 
And Jesus is there beside him, his son, it says. He went up and he sat down beside him in another place in scripture. And the Holy Spirit is inside of me. And when I hit bottom and I land on that canvas and I am out and I am done and I feel like I'm, I can do no more, the Spirit of God begins to utter and, and cry out in his voice up to God. And as these cries are coming, I believe Jesus is stepping in and saying, yes, there's the spirit that we left in him. God, you see Adam down there? Adam is suffering. Adam is hurting. Adam doesn't even know what, Adam's not even sure he believes in you anymore but let me tell you he does my spirit is in him he is crying out to you right now listen and intercede and step in on his behalf so I would say to Sam Harris I don't know why suffering exists fully I can't tell you why but I do know who and that's the heart of worship is to shift to a person. He wants us to fear him and to love him, to shift away from the why and see a God who is for you and who loves you, a God who kept his word but stepped in and gave hope. When you have no idea what to say, cry out or let the Holy Spirit do it for you. And what I want to do right now is I want to shift to communion. Some of you see the table up here. And people, we get asked at times, um, why don't you do communion more? Why do you do communion when you do it? And we say, I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know. It's one of those things as a pastor we've wrestled with and looked at all the different arguments for different, some churches do it every single week and we're like, ah, I don't know, that's us. And some do it on this strict rotation. But what we have sided on for right now, it's working, I think, is we say, let's put it in when it really fits. And I think it really fits this morning. What communion is, the team's gonna come out and they're gonna, uh, they're gonna lead us in a song just for us to sit and take in. I want you to sit and process, and then you're going to get this bread and this cup. And communion, it's nothing special, nothing mystical, nothing fancy about it. It's just this this little wafer and and some juice. And what it is, it's it's a representation of Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood. And what it is, it's a way to step in with all of your experience, all of your your senses, your taste. You can kind of smell as the juice comes in and, and, and sense and bring it into an experiential worship of God. It's what it is. It's a time to remember what he's done for you. So that's what I thought we'd do this morning. So I'm going to pray. They're going to come and sing. And through the song, you'll get this passed out. I just ask you to hold it. And we'll come back together as a family and kind of, kind of take this in. But as, as you're listening, step into who God is. Maybe you're over with Sam right now and you're, you're just, Christianity's out there. Step in. Wrestle. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're at the end of it and you're at the end of your rope. Step in. And know that God put himself on the hook for me. The Spirit of God is inside of me and, he, and he's talking for me. My prayer is that through this time you find a healing to this question of what does the Bible say about suffering. Because oftentimes it's asked because we hurt so deeply. God, thank you so much for who you are. God, I, I'm just simple prayer right now. Um. I ask that over these next five, ten minutes, people would sense your presence. They would know that you're here. God, they would step into you and they would feel and sense the hope that's offered to us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for being a God who's not indifferent to our pain. Thank you for being a God who, who keeps your word. We can trust you. Thank you for being a God who's given us freedom. 
And God, now as we have freedom to choose and to step back towards you and and your son, Jesus, who stepped into our brokenness, God, thank you for that. And I ask right now for healing all throughout this room. Whether that pains in a relationship or a marriage or the son or a daughter with an addiction, whether that pain is a mistake or a sin that's been committed, and the consequences are unbearable, whether that pain is from an illness or disease or, or, or something ravaging their body or a friend, God, would we just find healing and hope, endurance that strengthens our character, knowing that Jesus came to put himself on the hook for the suffering that we face that you told us we would when we stepped out of line the way you've designed this world to work. God, we love you. Thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.